Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. The first nine verses of chapter 1 consist of the Lord's address to Joshua. The remainder of the chapter consists of Joshua's address to the leaders of the people and their reply. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So Joshua told the leaders what Yahweh had told him, namely to prepare to cross the Jordan because the Lord was going to give Canaan to Israel. Like any good leader, he made sure his leadership team and the people knew both the how and the why. Uh, By the way, actually, it would take more than three days before Israel would cross. It took at least seven, as we will read in 2.22 and 3, verse 2. The spies, if you remember, were delayed in their return uh, from uh, their intelligence gathering mission, and that may have delayed the crossing. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said. Now, if you remember, when Israel conquered the lands east of the Jordan, several tribes proposed settling there rather than in Canaan. Moses was willing to concede this, but only on one condition, that the two and a half tribes do their part to help conquer Canaan before they return to establish themselves in their own lands. And this they agreed to do, as we read in Numbers chapter 32. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Verses 13 to 15 are a virtual word-for-word citation of Deuteronomy 3, verses 18 to 20. So Joshua is telling them nothing but what Moses had told them already. There's clearly some ambivalence about this settlement east of the Jordan by some Israelites, as may be indicated by the fact that we read that the Lord is giving Canaan to Israel, but Moses gave the land east of the Jordan to the two and a half tribes. Though it isn't denied that Yahweh also gave them those lands, as we read in verse 13 and now again in verse 15. And they answered Joshua. Now the text doesn't specify who it was that answered Joshua, but it's more likely that it's not just the officers of the two and a half tribes But now we're back to representatives of all the people, picking up the thread of verse 10. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do. And wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment 
and disobeys your words, whatever you commanded him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. The obvious question posed by the fact that some Israelites already have their inheritance is whether they will recognize Joshua's authority when they have little to gain and much to lose by crossing the Jordan with their fellow Israelites. But their answer is emphatic. You can count on us. Of course, Israel had emphatically promised such obedience before and failed to deliver. Israel hadn't obeyed Moses in all things, as a matter of fact. So the question is left hanging as the book begins. Will Israel prove true to her word? Has she learned her lesson? And for the fourth time in the chapter, as the chapter concludes, we have the exhortation to be strong and courageous. The previous three being statements the Lord made himself. This fourth, the people repeating what they had heard from him. Our Father in heaven, there is a summons to us here and one that has a particular edge given the circumstances. So help us, O God, to feel the edge and answer the summons. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We said as we began our study of the book of Joshua that the history of this book does double duty. It gives us an account of what actually happened and how it was that Israel gained possession of the land of Canaan, one of the most remarkable and influential events in all human history, if you think about it. But it also reinforces a paradigm of understanding about salvation and what nowadays we would call the Christian life. Since the promised land, the land of Canaan, is in the Bible an embodied prophecy, or what is called a type, a picture, or an emblem of heaven. And since pious Israelites themselves understood that very well, as we read in Hebrews 11, Israel's entering the promised land became in the Bible a way of thinking about getting into heaven, about obtaining salvation. You have this way of thinking about this very history in Hebrews chapter 4. There too we read about the rest that God is going to give to his people who believe in him and trust in him throughout the course of their lives. We read of that rest here in 13 and in 15. But the rest in Hebrews 4 is explicitly the rest of heaven. So in short, Israel entering Canaan provides us with a picture of Christians entering heaven. How does that happen? How do we enter the promised land? Well, we have already read that God must give us the promised land, that he has promised to give it to us, that he will defeat our enemies, that none of them could stand before us, and that he will be with us every step of our journey to the heavenly country. But at the same time, we read in the Lord's opening speech to Joshua that there is that which we must do, hence the emphasis on strict obedience to God's commandments, and the thrice repeated, be strong and courageous. But now another part of how salvation happens begins to be revealed. And in the later verses of chapter 1, the picture gets more complicated. We've already heard 
the Lord tell us that he will give us the promised land, that he will fight our battles for us, he will defeat our enemies, be with us all the way. Even with that emphasis on obedience and the need to be strong and courageous, we can be forgiven for thinking that gaining the promised land is going to be something of a cakewalk. The Lord will do what needs to be done and we will simply follow on behind. Follow him up and through the gates of the eternal city. Well, not so fast. Only a few of you in the sanctuary today will remember a young man who came to us many years ago uh, from our churches in St. Louis. A young soldier at Fort Lewis. Pat Strubert was what used to be called a soul winner. He hadn't been at the fort for more than a couple of weeks before he brought to church two young men in his unit. In due time, both of those young fellows made a profession of faith in Christ. In the language and imagery of Joshua under Pat's tutelage and with his encouragement, both of them decided to cross the Jordan with the people of God and enter the promised land and take possession of it. Both seemed genuinely excited about their newfound faith and began, began coming to church regularly, morning and evening on the Lord's Day and even Wednesday night. But after a few months, one of them began appearing less frequently. Pat told me that he was worried about him. He didn't seem to be as committed as he had been at the beginning. He wondered if I might try to talk to him. And I remember distinctly sitting in a Burger King on Fort Lewis, having lunch with this fellow and talking about what it means to follow Christ and why it is so important to do so. But all he could see were the complications. He'd begun reading the Bible, but he was finding it hard going. Couldn't understand it very well. He had friends. Most of his friends weren't Christians, had no interest in becoming Christians. And they wanted him to continue to do with them what he had done before, bar hopping on the weekend and so on, which in fact he enjoyed, and so on. The other fellow who had made a profession of faith was going on from strength to strength. He was reading the Bible voraciously. He seemed to understand everything he read. We were noticing that after only a few weeks, he was praying on Wednesday nights like a Christian veteran, picking up the vocabulary, inserting the Bible into his prayers, praying like he meant it. He later left the army and moved away, but for many years now he has been a faithful Christian. And I hear from him from time to time. He is today an officer in his church in Georgia. Some of you will remember Bill Bob. But the other fellow gradually stopped coming altogether, and soon we'd lost track of him entirely. Sad to say, I cannot now remember his name. To say that God will give us the promised land is absolutely true. He will give it to us. He must give it to us. But no one who has ever crossed the Jordan into the promised land did so without encountering complications along the way. Complications serious enough to deter many from ever beginning the trip and deterring others from completing it. Our text, the second half of chapter 1, identifies some of those complications, hardly all of them, but a representative selection. 
There are, for example, the complications that arise because the instructions from, for our journey come from other people like ourselves, not from the Lord directly. The Lord spoke directly to Joshua, but not to the people. They didn't even hear what the Lord said to Joshua from Joshua, but from officers of the people who had heard it from Joshua. They were getting the word of God third hand. And this was no ordinary word. It turned their lives upside down. They had to collect their belongings, or as much as they would take with them on the expedition. They had to say farewell to their wives and children, in many cases unsure when they would ever see them again. After all, they were heading for a series of battles, a war of conquest, and they had to summon up their own courage to face what lay before them. I've read enough of the history of war to know how men behave when they're about to go into a desperate battle, how nervous they become, how lost in thought, how determined to prepare their loved ones for the worst, and on and on. Read a history of D-Day. Read about how many of these men were preparing their insurance claims, claim forms, so that it would be clear who gets the money in the event of their death. This was the Israelite army, not a professional army, a host of amateurs as it readied to cross the Jordan River. All of those instructions came down the chain of command from Yahweh to Joshua to the officers, to each man. And like it or not, from that time to this, the Lord has chosen to speak through those with the authority to speak on his behalf. He has on purpose inserted this human element in the direction of his people. It's not our place to question the wisdom of God. No doubt he has perfectly good reasons for what he has done. Whether or not we fully understand the reasons is beside the point. But surely every thoughtful Christian has wondered from time to time if this were really the best way to do things. We know very well that Israel had already by this time a long-standing problem with the exercise of divine authority through human beings. When God intervened and showed his hand, she cowered in fearful and obedient submission. But when Moses told her what God demanded that she do, Israel found it easy to doubt that the Lord had demanded any such thing. Think of the times in the wilderness when the people rose up in rebellion against Moses. Never against Yahweh. Not explicitly. They wouldn't do that. They couldn't do that if God himself were speaking directly to them. But once Moses was inserted between, they found it quite easy to believe that Moses might be mistaken, that his motives might be selfish, even that he might be lying in telling them about what the Lord actually said. We encounter all of those experiences or those events in the book of Numbers. It's harder to take difficult instructions from a mere human being like yourself. This phenomenon, as we know, would continue throughout Israel's history. When the Lord revealed himself directly, immediately to his people, they submitted immediately. But he did that very rarely. 
For every demonstration of the Lord's power and authority on the top of Mount Carmel when he proved Elijah to be his prophet with lightning from the sky, there were thousands of times the Lord's prophets were sent to tell the people the word of the Lord. And we know how well that went. How often the people were unwilling to believe that the prophets were actually telling them Yahweh's word. The Old Testament histories, the accounts of the ministry of the prophets that we have in their writings is the long, sad story of Israel refusing to believe that it was, in fact, the word of God that was being proclaimed to them by Amos or Hosea or Isaiah or Jeremiah. And the same has been true ever since. For long ages, of course, hardly anyone had his or her own copy of the Bible. They heard the Bible. They didn't read it. And they heard it from preachers who then explained it and explained what it required of them, like the officers of the people did here. But even after the Bible became available for every believer to read for himself or for herself still, the Lord has continued to use preaching and the witness of of believers according to the word of God as the primary means of communicating With people. Preaching involves a mere man, an officer of the people, as here. And what has come of that? Good preachers and bad preachers. Faithful preachers and unfaithful preachers. But all of them just men. Will God's people hear his word and obey it when it is delivered to them by ordinary human beings like themselves? That's precisely the unspoken question that looms over Israel's future at the end of Joshua chapter 1. Today it's no different. Still the word of God is communicated by men from human mouth to human ear, from human mind to human heart, sometimes communicated very well and sometimes communicated badly. And always the question is, will people heed that word as a word from God when it comes from a mere human being? Will they discern the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? Will they heed the word of God from the mouth of someone like themselves, particularly when it contradicts the conventional thinking of their time and place or when it complicates their lives? The answer to all of those questions, fundamental as it would be to the conquest of the promised land and fundamental as it is today to the gaining of heaven, is at last the one real issue of human life. Will a mere human being be believed as speaking the word of God, whether the preacher in the pulpit or the Christian bearing witness to his neighbor or the parent talking to his or her child? Believe me, the world would be a different place if God spoke directly to everyone from heaven, if he eliminated the middleman. If God had been visibly present in that Burger King long ago, things would have gone differently. But he's not chosen to make this world such a place, nor has he chosen to guide his people to heaven by making himself visible to them or his voice audible to them. He's chosen to require faith of them, and a very large part of that faith is to heed his word when it comes from another voice. You want something to think about this afternoon during your Lord's Day? Ask yourself why God did that.
does that. We tend to pass over this without much thought because we are so used to it. But the great issue of faith and the greatest challenge to the Christian life lies in the difference between the first half of Joshua chapter 1 and the second half. Between Joshua, who heard Yahweh's voice immediately and directly, and the people who heard from others what Joshua said he had heard from Yahweh. The only way for us to live the Christian life is to live live it the way Israel had to live it as she crossed the Jordan, heeding the word of God as it had been repeated to her by others. The genuinely amazing thing, one of the most amazing things in the world, really, is that so many people recognize the voice of the Lord in the voice of another human being. Yahweh can cause his voice to be heard that way. I've heard him that way. You've heard him that way. In fact, it's the only way you and I have ever heard the voice of the Lord. Is it not? But we have no doubt that it was that voice, Yahweh's voice, that we heard. Still, this is very obviously a complication. Always has been, always will be. It makes being a Christian and living as a Christian more and more an act of brute faith. And that always makes it more difficult. That's why there's so much attention to this as the opening chapter of Joshua closes. The people are promising obedience to Joshua as unto the Lord. Another complication is that on this journey we depend on others. We're individualists in 21st century America. We don't appreciate others telling us what to do. We feel strongly that each of us should be able to chart his or her own course. In some respects, fair enough. But the journey to heaven can't be made alone. No one can get there without the help of others. This is a point that is taught everywhere in the Bible. But right here at the beginning of Israel's conquest of Canaan, her obtaining of the promised land, it's made with great emphasis. Not only must all of the fighting men be mustered and ready for the invasion of Canaan, but all 12 of the tribes must be fully represented. Now, put yourself in the place of one of those men of Reuben, Gad, or half the tribe of Manasseh. Personalize the situation so you can apply it to yourself. You just got your piece of ground, your farm. Finally, you have a place to live, to raise your family, to build a life. You've waited for at least 40 years or so, all your life, to acquire that piece of ground. You have all kinds of plans for your new farm. You're anxious to get going. In all likelihood, it is already a farm. It has been taken from a conquered people, and it's now yours to build up and to make prosperous. The land is fertile. It's productive. The future is bright for you, for your family. And now you're being required to leave that all behind for who knows how long, even if you survive the battles to come. 
If not, your wife and children will have to go it alone and your farm will end up the property of some other man and your wife will be his wife and your children will be his children. How long is it going to be before you see them again? You have no idea. Canaan is a big place. It has to be conquered in its entirety. There is a number of fortified cities that will have to be taken. No simple task, that. The more battles to be fought, the higher odds become of an injury or of death. It isn't as if there aren't plenty of men in the other nine and a half tribes to carry the battle to the Canaanites. And if the Lord is going to give Israel the promised land, and if none of her enemies can stand before her, what do they need me for? You know how human nature works, thinks, responds from your own experience, the observation of others. Isn't that the sort of thinking likely to be going on through the heads of these men who are called to war for the sake of others when they already have their inheritance? They're being asked to do more than others. A common reality in the world of grace. It's not difficult for people to resent that, is it? But no matter. Israel will take possession of the promised land together or she won't take it at all. And so it continues throughout the history of the church ever since. And so it has been for every individual pilgrimage to heaven that has ever been made from Joshua's time until our own. It's a trip made in the company of others because only with the help of others can it be done at all. That's how God organized salvation, like it or not. Here, too, we find our complications, do we not? As someone has said, Christians are an acquired taste. But we're required not only to be and behave toward them all as brothers and sisters of the same family, but to help one another in all manner of specific ways, many of which require something in the way of a sacrifice of us. No one can fight alone the battle salvation requires. So each of us is to be helped and to help. But how many times has it happened that our Christian life, our journey to the promised land, if you will, has been complicated by the people we're making our journey with? We prefer to be alone. We don't like that much some of the particular Christians we know, or they don't seem to be very helpful to us, or they haven't appreciated the help we have offered them. If you read the history of wars and of battles, you will find that a constant complication, an inevitable problem in obtaining victory is the difficulty that soldiers on the same side have in getting along with one another, in working together, in trusting the chain of command, and so on. Internal disunity bedevils armies. Always has, always will. Had Yahweh been willing to go himself into Canaan, secure all the towns, pacify the countryside, eliminate the Amorite population, and then invite Israel to cross the Jordan and take possession of the land, everything would have been so much simpler. But that's not the Lord's way. As Augustine said long ago, he who made us without us will not save us without us. It's important to him 
Not only that we participate in obtaining the promised land that he is giving to us, but that we do that together, helping, enabling one another. That's the Lord's way of salvation. We're going to find that this necessity of working together to take the promised land, of maintaining a unity of purpose throughout the people, is going to become an issue in Israel's conquest of Canaan, and later will be a constant problem and persistent complication in the fortunes of the people of God. Disunity will distract and weaken her again and again. Had the two and a half tribes refused to cross the Jordan, or had they mumbled and grumbled all the way across, they would have demoralized the rest and weakened Israel as a fighting force. How many times has that happened through the ages? How many times have divisiveness and disunity distracted and demoralized the church and the Christians in the church? How many times has our internal squabbling, our inability to get along with one another, weakened the church's testimony to the world? Our Savior said in John 17 that our loving unity would be the strength of our witness to the world. But how often has that not been the case? Voltaire, in his day, poured scorn on the Christian faith because there were so many warring and competing Christian churches that he said it was impossible to tell what the Christian faith actually was. But at least you could tell that it wasn't a message of love or of peace. Like it or not, the Lord has made our togetherness, our unity, our sense of common purpose, the help that we offer to and receive from one another key to the obtaining of salvation, to finding our place in the promised land. How many times? I don't think we will ever know how many have been lost because time and time and time again, as it were, men of the two and a half tribes were at the last unwilling to cross the Jordan on behalf of the rest. There are, of course, many other complications that make our journey to the promised land more difficult than it might have appeared to be at first glance. Some of them are at least hinted at here. There will be defections among us, as we are warned against in verse 18. No one demoralizes an army more than the traitor in its midst. Further, there will be those among us who don't take heed to obey all the commandments of God. A bad example of half-heartedness or rebellion is a cancer that eats at the morale of a fighting army. Then there will be those who are not strong or courageous and whose cowardice or whose excessive caution weakens everyone's resolve. We're going to find all of those complications in the story of Israel's conquest of Canaan. The fact that there are complications that make the Christian faith and our efforts to take possession of the promised land more difficult can hardly be denied. As G.K. Chesterton observed a long time ago, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. And how many Christians have had occasion to observe, if in perhaps less arresting language, than that used by Samuel Rutherford, I thought it had been an easy thing to be a Christian and that to seek God had been at the next door. But oh, the windings, the turnings, the ups and downs he hath led me through. It is these complications, is it not, that keep many from becoming Christians in the first place? 
and keep many Christians from being and doing all they might and ought to have done for the kingdom of God. Why, after all, are we treated in the Bible to case after case in which a man, a real believer, finishes his Christian life at a lower ebb of devotion and usefulness than once he had reached earlier on? Think of Isaac or David or Solomon or Hezekiah or any number of others. It was the complications, the difficulties, the challenges of the Christian life that wore them out, that distracted them, that that discouraged them, that put them off their game. And what's the answer to that? How are we to avoid that? Well, we're to do again and again what Israel did here. Say to the Lord, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Only may the Lord be with us then we will be strong and courageous. Don't say that once at the beginning of your Christian life and never again. Don't say that once a year. Again and again and again. All that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. One of Napoleon's marshals his generals of the highest rank, was asked by a citizen to justify the incredible generosity that Napoleon lavished on these men, his commanders. Each one of them became a fabulously wealthy man. This particular man, Francois-Joseph Lefebvre, had once been a sergeant in Louis XVI's guard and had come up through the ranks to the highest command in the French army simply by distinguishing himself in battle after battle after battle. He answered the citizen's question, peeved question, this way. We shall go down into my garden. I shall fire at you 60 times. And if you are still alive at the end, Everything I have shall be yours. No, we never said it was going to be easy. He never said sacrifices would not be required. He never said there wouldn't be wounds taken in these battles. What he said was that he would give us the promised land and that none of our enemies would be able to prevail against us. The complications may make the journey more difficult, but they also ensure that the journey is the more worth the making. Precisely because by rising to these challenges, we honor the Lord who is giving us these impossibly great gifts. Amen.